Psalm 25 finds David in the midst of dual crises. On one hand, he's facing a crisis of enemies marching towards him. On the other hand, he's facing another crisis, an internal crisis, as he deals with his own sin. Both crises are pressing upon him from both sides. And in such time of crisis, he can do only one thing, and that is to cry out to God and confess what he cannot do for himself. He asks not only for forgiveness, but also for God's deliverance. And so Psalm 25 is a prayer for deliverance and forgiveness. A prayer for deliverance and forgiveness. Psalm 25 is written in an acrostic form. In other words, each verse begins with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The reason these acrostics were used was to aid the reader or the student of the word in memorizing the word. And being easily memorized, they made the Psalms very usable and very teachable. So as we approach this psalm, Psalm 25, we're going to look at this prayer for deliverance and forgiveness, and we're going to begin with verses 1 through 5. And the theme of verses 1 through 5 is protection. Protection. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Make known your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. David begins his prayer lifting up his soul as an offering before the altar in sacrifice. He confesses his confidence in God. In verse 2, do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Sets our theme. Because David's acknowledging here that if God does not act, if he doesn't deal with David's enemies... And then with David, David's enemies will have the last laugh. In verse 3, his cry is generalized. None of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Again, notice the repetition of this word ashamed. He's repeating it to add emphasis. David doesn't want to have to defend God. He doesn't want to pray prayers that go unanswered. And, And really, it's a crisis of faith. Literally, David's asking, am I going to be ashamed of God? Think about this. Have you ever asked a similar question? Maybe it's not worded the same way. Maybe it's worded this way. Is the gospel really true? Or maybe you've questioned whether or not Jesus can really save you or heal or empower. How do you explain God's silence? And maybe you've even asked yourself this or thought this. The Lord's just indifferent. He just doesn't care. Well, rather than being ashamed, David prays, God, make my enemies the ones to be ashamed. Deal treacherously, okay? That verb, deal treacherously, means to act deceitfully. And it's an interesting word because it means to act deceitfully in a marriage relationship or in property rights. And so it gives us an idea of the deceitfulness here of these enemies of David. What it tells us is that David had made a covenant of some kind. Whether it was a covenant over property or marriage, we don't know. But there's a covenant, and these individuals have broken the covenant. They have acted treacherously or deceitfully in terms of whatever uh, was agreed upon for this covenant and have broken the covenant. 
They're traitors to their commitment. And so David prays that shame would come down on their head. You can think for a moment, what would it be like to pray that shame would come down on the head of someone who broke their commitment to you? Think about that. That's exactly what David's praying for here in this psalm. After he offers his soul to God, now he says, I'm ready to be taught. He says to the Lord, make known to me, teach me, lead me. He wants God first to make known his ways. Now, the, the idea of making known his ways means, Lord, reveal this to me. We're dealing with revelation. Now, we have 66 books of revelation called the Bible that contain God's ways. And we need revelation. We need God to make known his ways to us through his words because as, the, uh, as, as Isaiah 55, 8, 9 says, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, nor his ways are ways. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts than our thoughts. And so we need that divine revelation. Moses prayed in Exodus thirty-three, thirteen: 13, If I have found grace in your sight, show me your ways that I may know you. So God's ways are only our ways. They're only known to us if they're revealed to us, made known to us. But then we also need to ask, as David does here, teach me your paths. Or in other words, here's, God has revealed his way. Now, teach me these things. I just don't want to know them. I want to learn them. And then he goes on to say, now lead me in your truth and teach me. That word lead is the verbal form of the, for the word way. David's asking him to lead him into the truth which he revealed him to him. And as he goes along, te- continue to teach him. The idea that David's expressing here is this. Biblical truth is simply not truth to learn. It's truth to be obeyed. You can't simply believe God's word. Or think on God's word. It's not enough. We must do God's word or else we're self-deceived. It's exactly the point that James makes in his epistle beginning in the 22nd verse of chapter 1. Don't be hearers only who deceive themselves but be doers of the word. So the theme of verses 1 through 5 in this prayer for deliverance and forgiveness is protection. In verses 6 through 10 the theme now is one of patience. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness. For they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. We have a number of similar words here from our preceding passage, such as way, and paths, and teach. Now in his crisis, David has called upon God not only to make his enemies be ashamed, not only to not allow him to be ashamed, but now he calls upon God to remember his compassion. And the word compassion there, even though it's singular in the English, it's in Hebrew a plural intensive meaning full compassion. Literally the text is remember your full compassion and your loving kindness. Your mercy, your love are what? From of old. That from of old phrase means enduring. So Lord, I want you to remember your full compassion, your full mercy. I want you to remember your loving kindness, your covenant love 
and I want them. I want you to remember them forever. I want that remembrance to endure. He says, now, while I want you to remember those things, while I want you to remember your love and your mercy, I don't want you to remember the sins of my youth. Sins of my youth doesn't necessarily refer to the sins he committed as a child. Rather, sins of my youth are inadvertent sins. Sins that we didn't necessarily plan on doing or didn't premeditate on doing, but sins that we did nonetheless. And then he talks about transgressions. Now, transgressions are those premeditated sins, those willful acts of rebellion. And he says, God, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember your mercy. I want you to remember your love, love, but don't remember my inadvertent sins or my deliberate acts of sin. No, God, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember your grace. And I want you to remember me with your grace, or as the word here is, mercy in verse 7. Now, in the midst of this prayer, he stops the prayer, per se, and meditates for a moment on God. And he thinks on this. Who is it that is taught by the Lord? It's those who are sinners. It's not just any sinners. It's sinners who are humble, according to verse 9. God shows that he is good and upright by teaching the sinner and the humble one, or the broken one. Notice he doesn't teach the proud or powerful ones. He doesn't teach those who are unwilling to receive his teaching. But rather, his teaching is readily available to all sinners who will humble themselves, who are willing to have a contrite and broken heart and come to him on his terms. He says that he will teach them his ways and his ways are open to all who will keep his covenant and his testimonies. Now that's important because why? The enemies of David had broken whatever covenant they had made with David. But God does not break his covenant. And God is patient. He's patient with us. In spite of our sins, inadvertent or deliberate, he's always patient. His loving kindness endures, his mercy endures, his grace endures. And he remembers those things. Now the theme of verse 11 to 13 is one of plentitude. Plentitude. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity for it's great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in plentitude or prosperity. And his descendants will inherit the land. Now... He's still in the midst of the pause. He's paused his prayer. He's still in the midst of this meditation. But now he comes back to his prayer. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my or forgive my iniquity, for it's great. As he's meditated or reflective on God's mercy and love and compassion and grace, he's actualized his own experience. And what has made him realize is how great his sin in is. And he models how the word becomes effective in our life as we pray. As we're going along praying and realizing in prayer, because prayer will reveal to us what things or people or situations or whatever it may be that we truly love, as those things are revealed to us and then we pause and reflect on who God is, it's going to reveal to us through his words, words going to come back to bear on us and show us those areas that need to be pardoned or forgiven. See, you don't merely know the truth of God's mercy. 
You need to actualize that mercy. And the mercy of God can only be actualized when we understand and confess and admit and own up to our own sense, whether deliberate or not. And notice David prays for forgiveness. And in turn, what? He is the man who fears the Lord. Now the word fear doesn't mean David's you know, hiding in a corner away from God. He's no Adam in the garden hiding from God. No, this is a man who reverences God. This is a man who respects God. This is a man who knows that he is standing in the, in the presence of the Almighty, the Great One. And what is the essential trait of a believer who stands in the presence of this great God? Fear. A sense of reverence of God's holiness, of God's majesty. A recognition of God's power. And the person who fears God, the person who reverences God, and if you notice here, you can't reverence God if there's sin in your life. You've got to confess and forsake that sin. But when you fear God, you'll be taught by Him. So, He's willing to teach any sinner, all sinners, who will humble themselves, but not just humble themselves. We see another condition, that is, we need to humble ourselves and we need to reverence God. We need to bring ourselves down and raise Him up. And as we submit to God in humility, as we reverence God, we become teachable, and as a result, He will give us plenty. He will give us blessing. Now the theme in verses 14 to 16 is one of partnership. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear Him. He will make them to know His covenant. My eyes are continually towards the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Now notice what David says here. God will only teach the person who, what? Fears Him. You've got to confess your sin. You've got to humble yourself, but you've got to reverence Him. Because only will he reveal his secrets, those things that are most secret to him, those sacred mysteries contained in the text of Scripture. He will only open those secret, sacred mysteries to those who reverence him. Now that word secret can also be translated as the counsel of the Lord. You know, so many times I hear people say, what's God's will for my life? How do I find God's will? Here's how you find God's will. See yourself as a sinner. Humble yourself, confessing your sin. Elevate Him, reverence Him, respect Him. And that's the condition to having a teachable spirit. And then let Him teach you. And as He teaches you from His Word, He's going to reveal His will to you. But not before that. Now, understand here, when He talks about the secrets of the Lord being revealed, there's no new unveiling of God's truth. Revelation has been completed. Okay, There's no new revelation being given. But there is still much in the revelation of the Scripture that we have yet to understand and grapple. There is still much that God wants to reveal about Himself in His already revealed will or word to us. But we need to be a teachable. We need to have a teachable spirit. You know, this promise of God's counsel, or the fact that the secrets of the Lord are going to be revealed to those who fear Him, is ultimately fulfilled in Christ because He gives us a spirit who searches all things, yes, even the deep things of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. 
And then in verse 15, we have David responding personally. He's looking to Yahweh. He, he, his eyes are ever on him because he knows that God will deliver him from the ambush of his enemies and give him victory. And now David goes back to the crisis, to this twofold crisis he is facing. But now he sees himself a little differently because now he understands God's mercy. He's now understanding how God responds to him and how he needs to respond to God. And that's why he says, Turn to me and be gracious, for I am lonely and afflicted. He's lonely. These people he has had made a covenant with have broken that covenant and abandoned him. And he's afflicted. He's afflicted by his own sins. And so once again, he, clo- he begins to close out his prayer by asking God for what? Turn to me. Now it's interesting because the idea of turn to me, the word that's used there, is the Hebrew word that can be used for Repent. I've turned to you, I've repented, now turn to me. Turn your eyes upon me. Because why? Because in sin, God cannot look upon us. So when we confess and forsake our sins, when we turn back to God, now God can turn to us and be gracious to me. Finally, we come to our closing verses, 17 to 22, and in this, the theme is power. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my trouble. Forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies for their many. They hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, God, out of all his troubles. God must turn from us, but in his grace we can see his face. That's why David cries here like he did back in verses 5 to 7, Turn yourself to me, have mercy on me. He's asking first for mercy, and then he's asking for that mercy because why? He's alone, he's desolate, he's afflicted, he's in trouble. Bring me out of my distresses. Friends, we need to understand that it's not enough simply to confess and forsake our sin. Because while that's important and while that restores fellowship with us to God, we still struggle with the fact of that, that we committed that sin. The guilt of that still hanging over us, even though from God's viewpoint he's forgiven and removed as far as east is from the west. But we're still distressed. We're still struggling. Why did I do that? You know, and so what's David praying for here? Lord, take the distress, take the guilt from me. And so after you've confessed your sin, well, first you acknowledge your sin, then you confessed and forsook your sin, now pray to God, Lord, take this guilt from me. Take this distress of my sin away from me and let me go and serve you in the newness of life. Bring me out of my distress. He also says, look on my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Again, we can't get away from the fact of this need for forgiveness. You know, so often when we pray for this, not just forgiveness, but release from guilt or release from distress, we'll find ourselves relieved from emotional and sometimes even physical oppression. You know, so many people are suffering from uh, uh, emotional or mental anguish over some sin that they've committed. And yet, they have forsaken that sin, they've confessed that sin, but they're still struggling 
with the fact they've committed this sin. Friend, if that's you, right now, just right where you're sitting, standing, whatever it is you're doing as you're listening to this devotional, cry out to God and ask Him to deliver you from your distress, from your affliction. Help Him to have Him to release you from the emotional and mental oppression. And my friends, when He does, and He will, also you can find comfort and succor in knowing that if he can deal with your inward crisis, then he can deal with any outward crisis as well. If he can deal with your internal problems, he can deal with any of your external problems. Consider my enemies. Keep my soul and deliver me. Those people that have broken your confidence, those people that have abandoned you, those people that have let you down, listen, give them over to God. God will deliver you from them. And he vows that integrity and uprightness will hold him as he waits for God to answer and act. David Listen, he's not going to stoop to their level. He's not going to act like them. He's going to be a man of integrity. He's going to be a man of uprightness. Oh, that we would say the same for us, that we're going to be people of integrity. We're going to be people who are people of the book. We're going to be people who are ones who can be counted on that are going to keep their word. And we're going to be upright. We're going to follow after God. We're going to keep his word. We're going to obey his commands. Father in heaven, I thank you for this psalm, this 25th psalm, this psalm of forgiveness and deliverance. And Father, I pray right now for any of you who are listening that perhaps there's dealing with some internal crisis, some sin that they've committed. Father, I pray that you not only would convict them, but bring them to the place that they might confess and forsake it. But Father, even then, beyond that, I pray that you deliver them from their distress. Deliver them, Father, from the guilt that's still hanging on sometimes even after years of being forgiven, so that they can walk in freedom and newness of life. Father, I pray for those who are struggling with outward crises, crises from individuals who have dropped the ball, broken a relationship, uh, not kept their word, failed in their commitment, whatever it may be. That Father, help them not to be bitter. Help them not to be consumed with it. Help them not to be controlled by it but rather that, Lord, they would cry out to you to deliver them from their enemies. And that, Father, as they pray, they would not be ashamed, but rather that those who have done them evil would be ashamed, that you would deal with them as they need to be dealt with. Father God, give us a teachable spirit. Help us not just to confess our sin and forsake our sin, but now, Lord, help us to reverence you to stand in awe of your majesty and power. And that, Father, you would give us a greater insight and view of who you are. And in doing so, Lord, that you might teach us. Teach us your counsel. Teach us the secret things that you've not made known to a lost and dying world. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.